no one's checking in on the parent except no. for maybe the pediatrician because the parent's like, well, my nipples are cracked and bleeding and then I'm not making enough milk. And I have so many pediatricians in my area that will just tell the parent, we'll just take fenugreek. And yeah. to me, that that floors me because like you have no health history on this person. You oh, have no crazy. idea what medications they're taking. What's their sign right no idea what conditions they have. Oh, right. And you're just telling them to take fat. If that mom has diabetes, if that mom has thyroid issues, you're getting her in trouble. Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Maria. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy and through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the answers to the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. And welcome to the show. Hey, Maria. Hey, Shelly. That is a cozy, what is that that you're wearing? It looks like you're wearing a hug. I know it's so I told Morgan this year we would get like big fuzzy bathrobes for the house. I live in an old my house is 230 years old. It's old. It's drafty. It's cold. We have a wood burning stove. We're those people. Mm -hmm. And we got big fluffy robes. Kohl's has this is not advertised at all. But Kohl's has the best fluffy robes this year. And this is where I got those from. And it is super cozy. I remember last time I walked into a Kohl's. It's been a while. How was your Thanksgiving? It was okay. I mm-hmm. we went out to the West Coast to visit my family, and I still did most of the cooking, which is fine. That's what I like to do for Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And it was a pretty uneventful day, so it's good, right? Okay. I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. When you had Morgan, did you get any breastfeeding support from her pediatrician? other than being told that i should be doing it now yeah this week we're speaking with dr michelle gurvey all about how providers fail parents when it comes to breastfeeding yeah oh as a result of the broken medical system yeah Yeah. so many things i i could there's so many things to say about that that's gonna be a that's gonna be a hot topic to talk about Mm -hmm. I'm wicked excited. Yeah. But first I came across this article. Have you ever heard of, I'm not sure how to pronounce this correctly, but it's Peg Perego infant bassinets. I don't think so. They're like, they clip, they're the, the bassinets that go in the strollers that look like the old fashioned where the baby lies flat. And then there's that cover over it. Yeah. Anyway, they've been recalled. So parents should know that. Oh, Yeah. About 550 infant bassinets for strollers are being recalled for suffocation risk and a fall hazard, according to the CPSC. Suffocation risk, really? Mm-hmm. The product violates the federal safety standards and the Safe Sleep for Babies Act. And this is because they were marketed for infant sleep, but they have an incline angle greater than 10 degrees. Oh, and yeah. infant fatalities have occur- occurred in inclined sleep products after the infants rolled from on their backs or their stomachs while unrestrained. So there actually haven't been any injuries or deaths associated with this product, but the company is just making this recall because their product does have that incline mm-hmm. that could potentially cause that. And it's only on the uh, bassinets manufactured on or after June 23rd, 2022. 
Marino. So good for parents to know. Let's do our question of the week. This week's question is, how can I raise my milk supply while I'm mostly pumping while at work? (laughs) So I would have a few follow-up questions. Like first be, how frequently are you pumping at work? Mm -hmm. The more you empty your breast, the more milk you make. That's the basic concept of milk supply. The other question I would have is, have you ever been fitted for your pump phalanges? Or are you just Mm -hmm. using what came with your pump? Mm -hmm. Using the wrong size phalange can make a huge impact on your milk supply. Mm -hmm. And pump settings too. Yes, and pump settings too. And the type of pump you have. Not all pumps are created equal. Oh, there's so many out there that suck. No pun intended. Or don't suck. Don't (laughs) suck. That should suck better. Yeah. Tons of them. And and it's really disheartening because parents get back to work and they're relying on this pump and it just fails them within like weeks. Mm -hmm. I'd also want to know why they, what signs they are seeing that might make them think that their supply is low. Is it because the daycare provider is giving your baby like five to six ounce bottles, but you're pumping three to four ounces? Because that happens a lot where daycare providers will overfeed a yeah. breastfed baby and then tell the parent, well, you're not leaving enough milk. And of course, because we live in the US, the parents blame themselves, right? Oh, it must be me. My, I must not be pumping enough. Oh my gosh. And social media doesn't help with that. We need to stop posting these like pictures and videos of full bottles of pumped milk. Like that's how much you're supposed to be pumping. Yeah. It's not, it's not typical. It's not normal. If you truly are, you know, if you checked your flange size, you checked your, you had someone check your flange size and pump settings, you're pumping at least every three hours, your daycare provider is not overfeeding your baby. Sometimes there's just, you know, some parents just don't react as well to the pump as they do to the baby. So there's other things that you can try to increase your output while pumping, like smelling a blanket or a onesie that smells like your baby, watching a video of your baby breastfeeding while you're pumping. Sometimes with some parents, we do have to put in a little extra pumping on their days off too, to make up the difference for what they're not getting. Yeah. Um, It's also helpful to not watch yourself while you pump. Like I can remember, I was one of those people that did not respond well to pumps. And I can just remember like staring at every drop coming out of the bottle. And clearly that's not going to help you in that situation. So try to cover the bottles or put like a nursing blanket or something over you while you're pumping so that you're not watching yourself pump. Keep yourself distracted. Baby socks are great yeah, to put on the bottle. So you, yeah. even if you're tempted to look, you can't even see what yeah. you're getting. Yeah. 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 That was a really good question. And if you have a question that you want us to answer on the podcast, you can DM me at Shelly Taft IBCLC and we will answer it. Next up, we're speaking with Dr. Gerby. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Michelle Gerby all about how parents are often failed by the healthcare system when they're pregnant and after having a baby. With over 17 years of experience focusing on postpartum women, Dr. Michelle Gerby has helped thousands of moms overcome the most common and challenging issues that come with motherhood. With a background as a chiropractor, functional medicine provider, certified perinatal health coach, postpartum corrective exercise specialist and international board certified lactation consultant. She's had the privilege of witnessing firsthand the challenges, questions, and triumphs that come with being a mom. 
Hi, Dr. Michelle. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became so passionate about supporting, expecting, and new parents? Absolutely. And thank you for having me, Shelly, on your podcast. I have been a mom and baby chiropractor for 17 years. I thought I was going to be an MD. And then long story short, was really helped by a chiropractor after an accident. So I switched gears and went to chiropractic school. And then in OB class, I remember thinking, oh God, it's totally genetic because my mom is a nurse midwife. And I swore I would never work with pregnant women. My school was (laughs) next door to her perinatology clinic. And I literally would like go to work with her and then hang out after work and listen to babies on fetal monitors. And like, Mm -hmm. it was, you know, dinner table conversation was all birth related. And I was like, oh, I know I'm going to be a doctor, but I will never do that. And then OB class hit and I was like, oh my gosh, who needs musculoskeletal care that's non-drug and non-surgical? It's pregnant women. And most of my colleagues at the time were men. They wanted nothing to do with the pregnant women. And I just fell in love with it. And so Mm -hmm. I started working with women during pregnancy and then postpartum. And then they would have pelvic floor issues. And I went and got trained in that. And then they started bringing me their babies. And I was like, I don't know what to do for your baby. And they're like, well, you're going to go get trained and you're going to learn and you're going to work with my baby because <laughs> I trust you. And so I went and got trained in craniosacral therapy and really like gentle non-force methods of working on babies. And then when I had my own two kids 10 and 12 years ago, prior to that, I was working in a center for pregnant and parenting families. We had five IVCLCs, a midwife, a naturopath, a whole that was owned by a group of labor and delivery nurses. It was amazing. I had all of these friends in the business. I taught hypnobirthing and I had my first kid and I had pretty much every breastfeeding issue you can deal with under the sun. Mm-hmm. And I kind of fell through the cracks of the healthcare system. But I also remember thinking, oh my gosh, if I have all of these resources, all of these colleagues, all of these friends, access to all of this information, and I'm still struggling and you know, really needing a lot of help, like what is the average mom going through? Like what is the average person going through if they don't have all of these resources and all of this information, you know, I could only imagine. And then I got really, really interested in infant feeding. And I'd always treated babies and worked alongside IBCLCs and worked on the mechanical end of breastfeeding issues. But then I decided to also pursue my IBCLC and become a lactation consultant on top of becoming a chiropractor. Because I really, you know, you look at things through the lens that you have, but my lens is the nervous system and the musculoskeletal system. And I always tell all the families I work with that you really, every feeding issue has a biomechanical issue. Sometimes it's a small percentage, sometimes it's a big percentage, but it's always there. And I just love teaching. I love teaching parents how to advocate for themselves. I love teaching parents about their babies. I love teaching people about their bodies I mean, our bodies are phenomenal, what they were capable of. And so kind of stemming from that love, I've also recently launched an online end of my practice doing health coaching and lactation for people one-on-one because all of my patients would say, you know, will you work with my sister in Texas or my friend in Alaska? And so through that health coaching umbrella, I can now do that. So 
it's just been a lot of fun. And I am a teacher at heart and (laughs) I just love what I do. So do you think, because today's conversation is going to be very US centric, right? I I do have listeners in other countries. So they might be like, oh, this sounds completely different than what my experience has been. But as you and I know, the US healthcare system is one of a kind. Right? Yes, absolutely. Do you, do you feel looking back now, because you said you originally wanted to be an MD, do you feel like you kind of dodged a bullet? Do I you do. Feel like, yeah. Like yeah, you, I do. you wouldn't have been as happy. No, I wouldn't have been as happy. And I mean, I'm friends with a lot of MDs. And if I had a biggest demographic of people who come in my office as patients. And then when I say, how are you doing? They start sobbing. It's healthcare providers. Like the system is so broken. And even in the nineties, when I was like a candy striper in high school, cause I was going to be pre-med. And then in college I was an EMT and I worked in the ER, all the doctors I got to know. And you know, my mom worked at a hospital next door to my school. So I knew a lot of physicians. They all pulled me aside and they said, are you serious about this? And I said, yeah, Everyone in my family is a healthcare provider. I said, yeah, absolutely. And they said, don't do it. They said, healthcare is changing. You won't know any better because it will have really profoundly changed by the time you graduate, but you're not going to like it and don't do it. And I thought that's really interesting. I mean, multiple physicians, like uh, probably 10, you know, when I was in high school and in college were telling me this. And then after my injury, you know, going to a chiropractor was like going to a witch doctor in my family prior <laughs> to getting hurt. I mean, yeah. you know, they were just like, they'll kill you. They're crazy. And and I get it, right? We all have, all of our professions have a dark side. But, you know, all the chiropractors that I went and shadowed, I was really helped by a chiropractor. And I was like, well, this is really cool. I know nothing about this. They all really liked what they did. They loved their jobs. They were like, yeah, this is a great profession. I love what I do. And, you know, and and a lot of the managed care and insurance world has sort of trickled in to, you know, alternative medicine too. And now the kind of crumbling of the healthcare system is percolating out into naturopathic care and acupuncture and chiropractic. But yeah, I do. I really do feel like I dodged a bullet. I feel like I'm able to serve people best by not having to operate a hundred percent in that system. Absolutely. I 100% agree. I even as not a non MD, I was just a lactation consultant in a hospital, but I was working in the system and right in the heart of it. And I felt like I was just banging my head on a wall every day. Uh I, I mean, the amount of time that you are allowed to spend with each patient and, and the amount of time that you have is it's like nothing really. And every parent has experienced that, right? You go in to see your OB yeah. and the nurse comes in or the, the PCA and they take your, your vitals and you know, ask you all the questions off their computer. And then maybe the doctor comes in for like five to 15 minutes at the most, like 15 minutes is pretty long for a doctor to spend. Yeah. And then they're gone because they have to see so many patients a day in order to fulfill you know, in order to support their business in terms of like uh, malpractice insurance and keeping their malpractice insurance, reimbursement rates are going down. I feel like they're getting squeezed by hospital admin to be more productive. And, you know, I even, I used to own a big chiropractic clinic. We had a bunch of doctors, a bunch of massage therapists, rehab people, postpartum rehab people. And, you know, even within my world, the 
powers that be to bill insurance wanted all chiropractic people to get better in four to six visits with maybe 10 or 15 minutes of hands-on care plus an adjustment. And then that was it. And, you know, that's fine if you're treating 20-year-olds that fell off their mountain bike and need a little tune-up. But when you're working with a postpartum woman who's having breastfeeding issues, had a grade three tear, is dealing with prolapse, like none of those things will get better in that time frame. And so I think that, you know, women and postpartum women are just really underserved by this broken system that's about volume and throughput and productivity. And that's not why your healthcare providers went to medical school. You know, they want to help people. They want to be able to spend that extra time but then they get squeezed. And I ultimately ended up selling my big clinic and leaving the insurance world because I couldn't handle the constraints that were put upon me, even in private practice. And so now I have a non-insurance-based model, but I'm not under any contractual obligation to anybody. So if I have a family who can't pay for my services, I can write off half of them. I can do a payment plan. I can donate my time. I can do whatever I want. And that's not a luxury that MDs can afford because of the state of, you know, how much they have to pay for malpractice insurance and how much equipment they need. You know, I'm I'm really in, in a fortunate position. So. Right. And I think you're spot on when you point out that new parents and babies are one of our most vulnerable population of patients. And those are the, they often fall through the cracks. It is not uncommon. They do. And it's really like why I wanted to kind of come on and talk about this today is I think it's a really common issue to see happen where, you know, the average person who comes into my practice is, you know, usually after six weeks postpartum, maybe four weeks postpartum. If they've had a home birth, maybe the baby is still under midwifery care, but they're still looking for primary care provider. And I just so often see parents fall in this gap. And in the context of breastfeeding, I really think that this gap and break in the healthcare system is the reason why so many women struggle and ultimately stop breastfeeding because there's this huge lack of support. And one of the biggest things I see all the time is that, you know, they both have different providers, right? So mom maybe just got discharged from her six week OB appointment. And, you know, then they'll say, Oh, we don't need to see you for three years. You don't need a pap. And if they've had other kids, they may have not even seen another provider in the last few years, or they may not have a primary care provider. I mean, I always ask my pregnant patients to please have a PCP on top of their OBGYN, but not all people do. And then the the baby's physician, the MD or their family practice doc, often it's not the same provider as mom. So like in the context of breastfeeding issues, what I tend to see a lot is if the baby is gaining okay and staying on their growth curve or has a good looking growth curve, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it matters. These these are really heartfelt, wonderful providers who are trying hard, but they're like, they are not given enough education in breastfeeding medicine to dig a little deeper and realize that the way that they're getting there, that they're, you know, breastfeeding, pumping, topping off with a bottle, or mom is having, you know, nine out of 10 nipple pain to get there, or the baby is 
breastfeeding, but not really functionally breastfeeding. They're kind of like slogging and choking down letdowns and mom's feeding them every 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. That That's not really functional. And so I feel like moms get told things like just keep trying or, you know, work a little harder, give it some more time. And one of the big things I always share with my clients that I want people to hear is I, and this is coming from being a mom who's been there. I always say like three days of breastfeeding hell are like three weeks of any other hell. And I don't think that we should mandate that our healthcare providers, you know, have what we have to be a good doctor. Like I don't think a cardiologist needs to have a heart attack to be a great cardiologist. But I do think in the context of having a baby and birthing and breastfeeding, I do think that there's a different level of empathy and understanding when your provider has had children or has breastfed or dealt with breastfeeding struggles themselves. A really common example of this is maybe a mom who looks like she's developing some yeast on her nipples. And a typical response from a primary would be try some Lotrimin, you know, use it topically, wipe it off before you feed the baby. Well, if it progresses to deep stabbing ductal pain, you know, they'll say, well, try it for another three to five days and see, We, you know, before we try orals. And there's protocols for this. But, you know, if you have a healthcare provider who as a mother ever had ductal yeast, they're on it right away. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that's not OK. Like that is the that is the type of pain that PTSD is made out of. And they tend to be a little bit more proactive. And so, you know, one thing you know, I think is okay to ask is, you know, when parents are looking for providers is to say, you know, do you have kids? Have you had kids? Did you breastfeed at all? If you're a mother who would really like to breastfeed, you know, and kind of suss that out and and see what their answer is. You know, the healthcare system is really, I think, one of the hardest systems to go back to work as a breastfeeding mother. I mean, all the time I have women who I treat who are you know, ER physicians, nurses, they work in hospitals, they're in surgeries. I mean, you want to talk about not having time to pump or schedule breaks or or even just like a clean enough space and the time in your schedule to go do it. You know, I feel like you don't always find a ton of people who were able to breastfeed as long as they want to. But at least to ask, like, if I do have nursing issues, you know, who do you refer to or how do you handle them? I think are really good questions to ask. Mm -hmm. Where are you located? I am in Hood River, Oregon. So that is on the border of Oregon and Washington. Mm -hmm. And we're about an hour east of Portland, which is like our our biggest city in, in Oregon. So I live outside of Boston. And in my experience, the doctors, especially pediatricians in this area, will no longer do any sort of like interview. With parents. Oh, that's interesting. If you're like a good fit, it's either, no, you either want to sign up, sign your children up to be my patients or you don't. That's fascinating. Which can make it harder, right? To ask the provider these questions. So we have a lot of moms that will just post in Facebook groups. Like, does anybody know anything about this doctor or anyone can recommend a doctor? But again, you're getting recommendations based on what was right for that person's family not necessarily what's going to be right for your family. Absolutely. Here, people will still sort of let you suss them out and see if they're a good fit. And too, you know, I tell people that 
if you go to a provider and they don't feel like a good fit, regardless of their credentials, like go see someone else or just get a second opinion. You know, and I think that's really hard for new parents because they're exhausted, they're tired. If there's an issue like colic or reflux, and was just listening to your your colic episode, you know, a tongue tie, you know, they tend to already be kind of in the weeds. They're already exhausted. And then as parents, we want to do the best by our kids, right? So the MD is sort of the highest tier on the food chain medically. And if they're like, no, that's not the issue, or I don't think that's correct. But you have sort of a knowingness as your mom, as a mom or a parent that, you know, I think there's a little more here. I feel like we kind of hammer that out of people. And I I tell people all the time, like, you're a mammal. This is your baby mammal. You have this innate connection and understanding of how they're doing. And I think it's just important to keep trying to find a provider that sort of honors that and wants to help you cultivate that. And Mm -hmm. not that they have to be in agreement, right? You know, they may say, like, I don't think it's this diagnosis and here's why, but like, I hear you and let's, you know, keep this in mind and circle back to it rather than sort of like, this is it. But again, going back to the healthcare system, I think that the, my undergraduate work was all in biomedical ethics and the healthcare system at the University of Virginia, which was like right outside of Washington, DC. So it was really cool not cool, but I kind of got to watch the healthcare system crumble in college because all my professors were on the ethics boards in Congress and would go testify and kind of help try to shape healthcare policy. But really right now, the insurance companies are what kind of run the game. And what's so hard is that hospitals now are big businesses. Most hospitals are owned by their huge nonprofit corporations And the providers have to see so many more people to kind of keep hitting their numbers. Or a lot of private clinics are now bought by private equity companies and they want to see the production at a certain level. And so these poor providers who went to medical school because they want to help people are being told you have to see more patients and you only have six minutes for a visit or eight minutes for a visit. Moms and babies, I think, just cannot be assessed in that time frame. Mm-hmm. It's so hard. And so it's like your poor provider is frustrated and the parent is frustrated. And I think another piece, you know, that really is important to remember as a parent listening to this is that physicians get very little training in breastfeeding medicine. You know, the statistic I've always heard is about four hours. I saw on your website, I think you had three hours, but I mean, it's, it's not, not enough hours. <laughs> it's not enough hours. No, it's not enough hours. And so I think what's so hard is that breastfeeding issues are, they kind of bring like everybody to their knees. They're so crippling and crumbling because you can't shelve that issue. You can't say, oh, I'm just going to figure this out in two weeks and table it for now. If you, It's fine to start giving the baby formula, but then you're still making milk. You're going to get mastitis. You're going to get engorged. You know, I, I treat women for all sorts of issues. And I've had women with really severe incontinence issues postpartum. And they're like, I'm overwhelmed. I'm having all these other struggles with the baby and feeding. I'm just going to wear a pad and I'm going to just deal with it later, right? I need a few weeks. I got to get my feet under me. The thing I think is tricky about feeding and breastfeeding issues is that some sort of decision has to be made every two hours. And I, we tend to want to 
run things up the chain of command as parents and be like, well, the chiro- baby chiropractor said this and the lactation consultant said it's a tongue tie. And then the physician is not able to stay on top of all of the continuing ed and latest research. And so, you know, I find, I don't know your experience, but a lot of what makes it into like up to date, which is a big kind of synopsis of medical journals that physicians can subscribe to and read. And it gives you kind of the highlights Even some of the highlights that make it in there about breastfeeding medicine aren't really the most accurate summary of what the research is really saying. And it's not their fault. They have so much to stay on top of, right? But I I feel like I stick up for physicians and providers every day and they'll say, well, why didn't they tell me this research? I'm like, it's not their fault unless that's their specialty or an area of clinical interest. They have so many demands on them and have to do so much work to stay on top of stuff. Nobody has the time. We're all human. And I tell people that I'm like, I am absolutely the worst chiropractor to see if you have an acute meniscal tear. I'm like, I got what I learned for you 20 years ago in school. I never treat knees. I am not current on the literature. Like, I'm just not the best person to help you with that. You know, but a lot of the feeding issues and research I do try to stay up on. And I think that a lot of physicians aren't given the same luxury. And so when parents go and want this sort of final say or sign off by the MD, I find a lot of times they don't get it. And they are told, you know, things like, well, they said I should just kind of keep using the nipple shield a little bit longer, but they don't have enough breastfeeding medicine education to know that long-term use of the nipple shield will probably slowly downregulate that mom's milk supply, you know, or you know, well, it's okay. The baby's doing great. Just keep feeding them how you are, but they're breastfeeding, then pumping, then bottle feeding. And I, we call that, you know, as you know, triple feeding. I always tell everybody, I think that is like the fast track to postpartum depression. You know, like I cannot think, I cannot think of a faster (laughs) way to take a new mom who might be doing great or already mildly struggling and like push them down the well, you know, like that is just not, it's not appropriate. And then they're doing the best they can, you know, but Mm -hmm. another thing I think is really important to keep in mind is I'm going to use tongue tie as an example. Those of us in the healthcare fields that get to see the functional ramifications of issues have a much easier time adopting recommendations and in understanding it. So that in Portland, we have a really famous ear, nose, and throat physician, Dr. Bobby Gaheri, who's really pioneering a lot of tongue tie work. And does your audience know what a tongue posterior tongue tie is? Should I explain that or? No, they don't know. Yeah. Okay. So right before the pandemic, he taught a lecture for healthcare providers on kind of up news and updates on tongue tie. It was taught at the dental school. It sold out in like one day, 400 seats. So he agreed to teach it again on the second day. So this is like standing room only, 400 people in the room. And he said, you know, I want to see a show of hands. Who here is an IBCLC? It was like 40% of the room. Who here is a pediatric dentist? It was like another 25%. Who's a pediatric speech language pathologist or OT? Another 25%. He's like, raise your hand if you're like an infant body worker, massage, cranial person, chiropractor. That was, you know, pretty much the rest of the room. He said, now raise your hand if you're a medical doctor. Six hands went up. Mm -hmm. And he said, I've started doing this 
at the beginning of all my conferences for healthcare providers, because this is about average. This is what happens. He goes, there's 400 people in this room. Only six of you are MDs. He said, you keep your hands up. And, you know, there was one pediatrician, one ear, nose, and throat doctor, and then four primary care physicians. And he said, you guys don't get to see the functional ramifications because you don't get enough education in breastfeeding medicine. You don't get to see the functional impacts. He's like, let me guess, you guys are all taught as long as the baby's on the growth curve, we're okay. And that babies are refluxy and babies are colicky and some moms just don't make enough milk. Then he said, you know, the IBCLCs, you see the feeding issues, the SLPs, you see the speech, the dentists see all the dental ramifications, right? And they're not given enough of that framework to really help guide parents, I think, sometimes to really navigate feeding issues. And and so I think that that's another area where the healthcare system in general could really help improve upon maternal infant care, you know, was to add in a little extra education for physicians who want to work with moms and babies, you know, on breastfeeding medicine. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was great what you said. And I have a couple thoughts on it. I think it can be really challenging for parents because going in, especially if it's their first baby, you think you're the pediatrician is the expert on anything and everything Mm -hmm. about your baby. And that if you have breastfeeding difficulties, they're the ones to go to, right? And as you know, you know, the AAP came out with their new statement on breastfeeding where they now recommend breastfeeding for two years. And then they added that, that section on like pediatricians need to be at the forefront of advocating for breastfeeding supportive policies. And, but the problem is no more support for moms though. We're like, just do this extra thing, right? No more maternity leave, no more support. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing is, is, they're being told that they now have to assume that this role on a, in addition to all the other roles, but nothing has changed to allow them to do it. Just like parents yep. now being told you now have or should breastfeed until the, your child is two, but we're not going to give you any additional support systems to reach that goal. And so you have parents who are like, okay, now I should breastfeed until I'm two years old. They start to have trouble. They go to the pediatrician, the pediatrician maybe three hours of breastfeeding education, which I have heard from pediatricians is mostly that education is more around why parents should breastfeed and not how to help them breastfeed, mm-hmm. right? And so they go to the pediatrician with feeding difficulties and the things that pediatricians say to these parents, which can be downright harmful, not out of malicious intent, but just lack of education. Oh, your baby's just lazy. Like the things that you were listening. Yes. Just, just yeah. keep trying. Some babies aren't meant to breastfeed. You are, yeah. your, your milk quality must be poor. They're and how many of them? Right. I mean, the, the bottom line is they do not have the time to sit and watch you breastfeed your baby. No. Try to figure no, out what's going on. They don't. And and sometimes I get really frustrated, especially when it comes to something like tongue tie or a recessed jaw or some other structural issue that is keeping the baby from transferring. That is very obvious to me when I watch the baby feed, like this baby's not a great feeder. And then they go to the pediatrician and the pediatrician's like, well, the baby's getting weight. So yeah. you're you're doing fine. Even the formula feeding families that I work with who are spending 24-7 just to get food into their baby because the baby struggles with even the bottle. And they'll still say, well, everything's fine because the baby's gaining weight. Or they'll say there is no tongue tie because the baby can stick their tongue out. 
No, where they'll yeah. say there is a tongue tie, but it's not tight enough to impact feeding. And my question always is, if you didn't observe a feeding, how can you assess a feeding? How can you tell a family this tongue tie is not impacting feeding if you've never even seen that baby feed? Oh, I agree with you. And and I go a step further and I'm like, you have to watch the baby feed and then you have to do an intraoral assessment. Right. Which they don't you know how to, to do. You have to assess. It's a functional diagnosis. And yeah. And parents are like, oh, I was just told that the tongue tie wasn't a big deal. And so that wasn't a part of the issue. I mean, and I, what's very cool is that like, I ran into all of these things as a mom with my first kid. I mean, he's about to be 13, you know, and since then in this last decade, there's a lot more information out about tongue tie, but I remember, I mean, the physician who delivered him, he was amazing. He was so lovely and he was going to be our family practice doc. And then I was having all these nursing issues and he looked at me, he said, you know, my wife was a leche, la leche leader and she couldn't breastfeed and some women just can't breastfeed. And, and I was so like, dismissive. I just don't think, yeah, I felt dismissed, but I also was like, I don't think as mammals we'd be here if this was like, oh, just some kids can't eat. You know, I was like, right. no, there's something going on. Like this is, mm-hmm. I'm having issues. And I said, you know, I think it's this tongue tie. And he said, no, that's a fad diagnosis. I don't believe in that, which to me is like saying, I don't believe in diabetes or <laughs> I don't believe in heart disease, you know? And right. so I, yeah. I do tell parents all the time if someone is saying that they don't believe in colic or believe in reflux, and you know, I I agree, some of these can be big garbage can diagnoses. But if they're dismissing you and saying I don't believe in that or believe in tongue tie, it should just sort of tickle your you know parent radar to be like maybe I should get a second opinion, maybe I should talk to someone else. And then another issue I think that comes up a lot, like you mentioned, you had worked in a hospital is with that sort of chain of command in a hospital setting of nurses working under the MDs, you know, I've seen a lot of issues, especially when I was working in Portland, where the nurse would think one thing was going on, the lactation consultant nurse, but really not have the freedom to actually tell the parents because that was perceived as diagnosing. And if the baby wasn't sent in with tongue tie for say, as a diagnosis, they were then kind of their hand was slapped for saying, you know, we didn't send this baby to you for tongue tie assessment. We sent for feeding assessment and we're not saying the baby, I don't believe in tongue tie or this isn't actually what I as the physician think is going on, mm-hmm. you know, or you can't diagnose them with yeast. It's a sticky situation. And I would see a lot of my friends and colleagues, you know, it's funny when you work in this business, all your friends end up being like labor and delivery nurses and you know, doulas and midwives and OBs, you know, it's just tricky. And so I mm-hmm. think that sometimes too, even in an assessment, even with a lactation consultant, there is maybe more that somebody would like to say or more that they would like to implement, but you have to also think about the setting that you're in. And that's where, you know, for each of my kids, I saw four different IBCLCs. You know, like I said, I really had the potpourri of feeding issues but everybody would give me like a little piece of the pie, right? And the difference between, you know, an IBCLC who works in a hospital and an IBCLC in private practice, it one isn't better than the other. They're just different, you know, and it's a different experience. And so sometimes I just encourage women to kind of keep digging, keep asking questions, you know, 
if someone's telling you something that's not resonating with you, keep seeking out more information because I think that senses as mom that like, there's more here, there's more that can be done is Mm -hmm. really valid. And I think the healthcare system in general, you know, we don't cultivate that in parents. Mm -hmm. We don't, we like to say that like, we're the experts and this is how it is. And yet I think that we all have this sort of deep knowingness, right. About how our kid is doing and what's going on, you know, and, right. and that if we can all help facilitate that, that that also would help, help people a lot. Right. And I think it's something parents don't realize. Even when I worked in the hospital, our, my facility had a gag order on IBCLCs against talking against tongue ties. So yeah, even if we saw a very tight anterior tie, we were not allowed to say anything to the family. And that was so hard for me as the provider, because I'm watching them, you know, discharge and walk out of the hospital and feeding is not going well for them. And they're you know going to get worse. Yeah. It's like they're going home. The it's go off the rails. Yeah. Yep. And I know why, right. I know why feeding mm-hmm. isn't going well for them, but I cannot tell them. So all I can do is hope for the best for them as they head out. And then you, you know, of course they go to the pediatrician, the pediatrician, like, oh, the baby can stick out their tongue. It's kind of a mess. And I think it's really confusing and hard for, for parents to navigate. And even when it's going well and it's working the way it's supposed to work, it's not really going well. Like you have your baby and you get checked by anesthesia OB while you're in the hospital. And then it's like, okay, see you in six weeks. Why, why, why are we making parents? I mean, the amount of trouble a parent can get into in six weeks. Oh, and I'm not talking about just mental health, but, you know, postpartum preeclampsia or there's so much stuff that can go on and we're not, no one's checking in on the parent except for maybe the pediatrician because the parents like, well, my nipples are cracked and bleeding. And then I'm not making enough milk. And I have so many pediatricians in my area that will just tell the parent, we'll just take fenugreek. And yeah. to me, that that floors me because like you have no health history on this person. You oh, have no crazy. idea what medications Definitely. they're taking. What's their fine you have no doing. idea what conditions they have. Oh, right. And I you're know. just telling them to take fat. If that mom has diabetes, if that mom has thyroid issues, you're getting her in trouble. I know. The mother is not their patient, but sometimes they treat it like it is. And I think, you know, family practice, like family doctors, I love, they're a disappearing breed. But if you can get in with a family practice too, because the the both parents, the baby, the toddler, you can all see the same provider and the provider will get you to know know you as a family. And that's what my, I always encourage, you know, we have a lot of family practice docs in our area and I always encourage people and a lot of our pediatricians work in the bigger family practice practices. So I always say, get in with family practice so they can see both of you. And I can't tell you like how many of my friends who are family practice docs, they'll be, I'll be on the phone with them saying, Hey, this baby's having an issue. Da da da. Here's what I think is going on and sending them back into you. And they're like, Oh, I'm already seeing mom for her postpartum checkup. I'm going to just see baby two and leave a little extra time, or I'm going to actually touch base with that mom and see if we can make the appointment for the baby and we'll get mom back on the schedule Mm -hmm. next week. Like there's just this lovely ebb and flow. If you need to see the pediatrician, they're there. Like my kids were in with a big family practice. And then my youngest, I think when he was two developed pretty bad asthma and reflux, we switched to the pediatrician. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. You know? And then when we got that under control, we kind of switched back into family practice. 
Yeah. And I think that can be a really lovely, lovely way to do it. And we have some really awesome, well, we have really awesome pediatricians out here and awesome family practice. But I think that for families that are really wanting that kind of, you have to look at both of them together. And and I think another piece to stress for parents is I think all feeding issues, it's always a little combo of mom and baby, right? Mm -hmm. And so as a parent, like, and you're, if you're really wanting to breastfeed and you're dealing with breastfeeding issues, seeing an MD who really is only your physician or really only the baby's physician, you know, that's putting them in a pickle too, because they can't really assess both of you, but you have to look at both all of the time. I mean, how many times have you seen a really tongue tied baby, but they're getting the job done because mom could breastfeed triplets, right? Or, you know, mom is really struggling, but that baby's just really good at getting their needs met despite mom's lower supply. But, you know, like you, like your fenugreek example, right? Like, but what if mom has hypothyroidism or retained placenta? Her, her problem isn't a fenugreek deficiency, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. totally agree with you. And I experienced that as a new mom too. Like my son was tied and he rode my lead down. Mm-hmm. Like he was miserable, like miserable all yeah. day. And yeah. he gained really well. So they just kept telling, well, you're doing fine because he's getting yeah. well. And I always tell families like feeding is more than the number on the scale. Yeah, absolutely. So you absolutely. have these parents who they they go in postpartum and they think, okay, my doctors, whether that's my OB, pediatrician, they're the experts, but their OB, they barely see. And then their pediatrician may not have all that information. And you know what? They don't have to. My favorite provider is the one who knows what they don't know. Yeah. My favorite provider is one, you know what? I see that you're really struggling with breastfeeding. It's not my forte, but here's a list of IBCLCs that you can go see, or here's a list of body workers that you can go see. It's the providers who are afraid to, or don't want to admit that they don't know, and will just keep pushing the parent in the wrong direction that kind of make me a little ragey. I'm like, it's okay if you don't know. It's okay if you don't know. I don't know a lot of things, but you need to send them to someone who does know instead of just guessing and making it harder for them. I agree. And, And I think what's hard sometimes is for MDs is I think it is hard for them to not know as much as, you know, someone as lovely as a chiropractor or an IBLC or an RN or an LPN, you know, it's, it's like, I think it's some of the, just like the training in medicine. Right. But I do find that a lot of the younger physicians who were trained more recently, you know, within the last like five to 10 years are very like, yeah, we're all more of a team. And, you know, like some of that old school hierarchy, I think is decreasing a little bit. And I think there's more of like a natural curiosity of like, well, that's really interesting that that IBLC CLC came up with that is what's going on. Like, I don't know about that, but I'm interested to learn more. You know, and I always really mm-hmm. try to, I have a lot of parents who will say like, well, why didn't my doctor tell me all of this? Or why didn't they say that the baby was tongue-tied? I'm like, it's not their fault. There's so much that they have to keep up on. They're not given enough education you know, they're a great provider. It's just, this is not their specialty and, you know, it doesn't equate not getting good care, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that there's different shades of it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I think there are sometimes, right. In every profession where like, you're just not getting good care. Like, I think like letting somebody, 
go on with persistent nipple pain that's 10 out of 10 without figuring out what the heck is going on is just not good care. Right. You know, like that's just not acceptable, you know, to not deal with pain and pain management. But I think there's other things where it's just sort of an error of omission or there's just not enough information or that people don't always know what to do or how to refer or know enough about like what different people do. Right. Mm -hmm. I run into that all the time. They're like, I don't know, go see Dr. Gerby. I have no idea what she does to babies, but like everybody says good things and I hear they'll nurse better, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where, like I used to teach a lot for conferences and seminars and lecture a ton about, you know, before five years ago, but the one time I'll still drop what I'm doing and make time to go talk is to give, you know, talks to physicians or like if there's an OBGYN like residency and they want, you know, just to come answer questions on behalf of either the chiropractic profession or IBCLC, you know, and just answer all of these things to the best of my ability, right? Because I don't know everything, but at least saying like, well, here's other resources or here's other places to look and just like help support them and have them feel encouraged. Because I I never want it to be an us versus them mentality. I'm never like, oh, you know, your doctor should have caught this and they didn't. No, there's stuff that they see that I miss, right? It's all about just working collaboratively and supporting each other. But I just feel so badly for them with such a broken healthcare system. And I think another thing that parents really need to keep in mind is the healthcare system was sort of like broken and crumbling prior to the pandemic. And now with COVID, it's like broken and on the floor. You know, I mean, my mom was diagnosed with uh, endometrial cancer in January and couldn't get surgery. And it was early, but only because her GYN was like, I think it's silly that we don't do PAPs on women over 65 anymore because women are living longer and have more cancer. How about a PAP? And my mom was like, yeah, sure. She's a retired nurse midwife. She's like, yeah, whatever. She had cancer. We would have never known. Right. But she couldn't get in for surgery. She couldn't get in right away for a consult. And then she couldn't get in for surgery for almost two months. Wow. And even her oncologists were like, this is a super early stage because it was a wonderful, like miraculous catch. But he's like, I don't like that you have cancer for two months and I don't have an OR staffed with an anesthesiologist mm-hmm. any sooner. And his practice, he worked at the biggest, most reputable oncology center in Portland his scheduler calls every hospital in the area every day asking if there are surgical cancellations that they can have OR time. Hmm. I mean, that's Uh, crazy. That's crazy. And probably one or two came up and went to, I'm hoping somebody who had, you know, way more advanced cancer that needed emergency surgery. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think that that's just kind of a good illustrator of just how, overburdened the whole system is, you know, and to be an oncologist and say to your patients, like I'm stressing out for you that you can't get in in a timely manner. I mean, it's probably sounds weird for your guests who are in other countries, right? Because I think Mm -hmm. America is always perceived as having so many advances and all this technology, but right now it's really broken, you know, and one of my son's friends had her kids in Norway and she was like, oh, well, we have a nurse who comes over who's also a lactation consultant and a doula and it's paid for. 
you know, by the national healthcare system and they come over every week. And then there's mom's groups in your neighborhood that's also run and mm-hmm. supported. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And she's like, well, yeah, that's why we moved back there was to have our kids, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm like, and she's a nurse in the U S you know, <laughs> she was yeah. just like, this is crazy. Yeah, it is. It, there's not enough follow-up at least and definitely not for the parents, but even for the baby, sometimes they'll do like the 48 hours after discharge wait and then the one week and then the two week. And if things are, if the baby's gaining, they're like, okay, you're doing great. See you at the two month or the one month or whatever. But as you know, like sometimes things are just going great because milk has just come in and mom's engorged and baby yeah. can ride the letdown and then baby starts to lose weight and there's no eyes. There's no one watching this baby. And, no. and to your point about I do think you're right with the younger providers coming in. Do you have a more collaborative approach with other healthcare providers? And I think it's hard for, it's hard for me to not understand the collaborative approach because IBCLCs work in it so much. Absolutely. I work with body workers. I work with, you know, release providers. I'm sending them my report. Every time I see the family, they're sending me their reports. We're texting sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, is this a good time for the release or do we need to do more work or whatnot? And I think that's such a new thing for the MDs coming in, because even if it was like, okay, I'm going to refer you to a GI specialist. It's like, okay, you go see them for your GI issues. Don't come back to me for your GI issues because now you have them. And it's almost like separated from the rest of that person's care. Yeah. Versus like, okay, well, you go see the GI doctor, you know, he'll send me his report. Let's see what we can come up with together. Well, and someone still has to feed that kid who's miserable or not eating well or doing so poorly that they have to see the GI specialist. Someone still needs to help that family. And that's where again, like the high, the structure of medicine of like, you have your generalist and then you see a specialist. There's just so many parents who I think also in that two to 12 week postpartum period, they're in that gray area, right? Or even the physicians like, yeah, I agree. This kid seems really miserable, but I don't want to medicalize this necessarily or overly aggressively treat something. But then it's like they don't always know then why they're referring for other things or what to do. You know, it's like this. Mm-hmm. I think it's a gap. And I think sometimes like watch and wait gets kind of really overused. You know, right. it's in like the we name don't of not medicalizing the baby, but a lot of times there's medical stuff going on, right? Well, there's like, no alternative offered too, right? It's like I don't want to put your baby on reflex meds yet. But there's no alternative offered. There's no, yes. I don't want to try meds yet, but let's try this instead. Or why don't you absolutely this person? It's just like, no, we're not going to do that. Take yes. your cranky baby home and good luck. Yeah. <laughs> and I see that all the time with reflux. I also see it all the time with tongue tie, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no, it's not a tie. That's not the issue. That's not why your baby's miserable. You're having a ton of pain. Your supply is going down. Mm-hmm. And I always tell the parents, They said, well, I went to my doctor, I asked them, they said that wasn't the issue. And granted, like this is improving now over the years, right? But I always say, well, then did they agree to take ownership of this medical issue? Did they then take full responsibility for helping you feed this baby comfortably, healing your nipples, increasing your supply and having that baby thrive? And if you still want to breastfeed at this point, will they take ownership of having you exclusively breastfeed and give you a roadmap there. So if it's not, mm-hmm. what is their plan? Right. 
And that's something I ask families too. I'll be, and when they come back and say, oh, the doctor said the baby's not tongue tied. And I will always say, okay, so when the doctor watched the baby breastfeed, what did they think it was then? Uh-huh. And you can see that light go on in the parents' eyes. Like, oh, well, he didn't actually watch the baby feed. There were no other ideas actually presented yeah. except for maybe give bottles, you know? Yeah, and that's the hard part. And that's where I think like, the bigger picture is this is like so disempowering for parents, you know, and if your MD is like, well, just try topping them off with the bottle or, you know, if they're still hungry, just give them a little bit of formula. But that mom really, really wants to breastfeed. To me, it's just not the best care. There's better Mm -hmm. things that can be done. And moms have a sense that probably more can be done but they don't always know, I feel like, where to turn and what to look for. So I always just really encourage parents to like keep asking questions, you know, or if they say things like, well, you know, let's just work on your supply with fenugreek and, you know, to say like, well, then how long am I doing this for? And I'm on the same page with you. I think it's okay for people to keep asking questions. And if you don't feel like there's a solid plan, then keep seeking one out and keep getting second opinions. So you mentioned second opinions, asking questions. What are some other ways that parents and expecting parents can empower themselves and advocate for themselves within the healthcare system after they've, while they're pregnant or after they've had their baby? I think when they're pregnant, you know, just kind of asking around, I always say, if you want to find a good doctor, ask a nurse, like, you know, always ask nurses, (laughs) you know, like, who do you take your kids to, you know? So I think just kind of knowing when you're pregnant, I think kind of asking around, like get yourself a good family practice doc, ask around, Hey, dude, any of you take your, you know, kids to family practice docs, who are they establish yourself with that position? You know, if they'll see you while you're, you know, doing your care with an OB or midwife. So establish that care now. I can't tell you how many women are like, I don't have a PCP, but the GYN will see me. And I'm like, yeah, but you're going to be up a creek. God forbid, six weeks postpartum, you develop thrush or, you know, a UTI or, you know, raging mastitis and nobody will see you. Like it's a long wait for healthcare right now, you know, like get in and then, you know, things like listening to podcasts, asking questions, I think kind of going into it with an open mind of knowing that feeding and breastfeeding inherently is a complex thing because it's two people, Right. It's mom and her supply and her body and then baby and how they're doing and just being open-minded that you are not failing if you need to keep asking for help. You know, Mm -hmm. so if you deliver in the hospital, always ask to see the lactation consultant. I always tell parents this, whether you're having issues or not, ask to see lactation, like that would be fabulous. And then follow up with lactation. And then I, I always tell parents too, like, even if things are going well, I really would love for you to see an IBCLC, you know, kind of at that three week postpartum period. Mm-hmm. And, and I always explain to moms, I always say that like learning to breastfeed with a new baby, regardless of how many babies you've had, right. Should be, it's kind of like, like learning to dance with a new partner. Like initially kind of, you might be stepping on each other's toes, but you should sync up. Right. And I always tell like my pregnant ladies, I'm like, if after a couple of weeks, like you're one person still stepping on the other's toes, regardless of how well people are telling you you're doing, if your sense is that something's off, go see an IBCLC. And if you feel like you're not 
getting your questions answered, go see a different one. Go see someone. If you're in private practice, go see someone in the hospital. If you're seeing someone in the hospital, go see someone in private practice, go see a different person. You know, everybody has a little bit of a different take. Another big issue I think is, you know, we haven't talked about, this is my own personal position. This isn't necessarily, you know, grounded in one form of evidence, although there's a lot of evidence to support this, that I think babies have more issues nowadays, like gut dysbiosis, really causing a lot of aberrant discomfort in kids that can lead to feeding behavior. I see a lot of kids that are really presenting with more early sensory issues or what could potentially turn into early sensory issues. And, you know, I think that babies are coming in a little bit more complicated. I don't know how long you've been in practice, but now my kind of average patient for an infant is what used to be like kind of a way tougher case. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's just more going on. And if I had a dollar for every, you know, and I would never see a new parent and hold their four-week-old baby and be like, these are all sensory issues, you know, but sometimes I work with people and, you know, the baby's just really struggling and struggling and we work on tongue tie and we work on all these other issues and, you know, they just have like a slightly lower tone and, you know, I'm like, Hey, if they're, you know, not making sounds on time, if their talking is delayed, if, if, you know, adding in solids isn't going smoothly, like I want you to bring this up to your primary. And if they say, let's just watch and wait for a few more months, come back and see me. Mm-hmm. And I am not the person to then assess that baby, but I will refer you to an age appropriate feeding specialist or speech language pathologist who deals with that stuff or, and, or, you know, an OT who just sees kids six months and up. So I also think too, as a parent to know that if you're feeling like something's off and you're not totally getting there with lactation or with your physician to branch out, you know, mm-hmm. and say like, is there a neonatal OT in the area that you could go that get their take on it or a neonatal speech language pathologist? Like sometimes just extending those tentacles a little farther and having somebody with a different filter kind of look at something is also really helpful, especially with the kids that I lovingly, and this was my second child completely, but, you know, they graduate to what I kind of always call the best worst nurser, you know, (laughs) just Mm -hmm. like, you're getting it done. You're going to be able to breastfeed sustainably, but this is like not super pretty. Yeah. But I always tell those moms like, Hey, if they're not rolling on time, and if you see these other things, like again, follow up. But if you're just told to watch and wait, like let's actually be proactive. Yeah, I agree. I am seeing, you know, I, I've been in practice for about 10 years and gone are the days when I first started in my private practice where it was like, okay, it's just fixing the latch, right? Quick latch. Yes. Fix, quick latch. Yes. Now, when I come across a baby that just needs a quick latch fix and that's it, there's nothing else going on. I call them unicorn babies. Yeah. Absolutely. Because it's so rare. And not only the babies are coming in with more complex situations, but the parents as well. Absolutely. With more complex medical histories, more complex, you know, and it's just, and I think that the IBCLC credential has evolved so much to incorporate being able to handle these complex situations. We're not doctors, but we can, you know, manage them in the breast, in the breastfeeding scope, right? Absolutely. Providers still view us as the quick, you know, they just fix the latch. 
They don't know what to do about your milk supply with your hypothyroidism, or they don't know what to do with your baby who doesn't know how to suck or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yes, it has definitely gotten more complex. I am a nerd and I will often daydream about like my personal view of what a perfect healthcare system would look like for mm-hmm. expecting a new parents. And it's always like, okay, they, they would have their OB or their midwife, whatever, whoever's delivering their baby, but they would also be, you know, it would be standard practice for them to also see a nutritionist, see a pelvic floor specialist, totally. see, a, body oh, worker, see yeah. a lactation consultant. If they're, pl- even if they're not planning on breastfeeding, cause you still want some advice on how to dry up your milk supply. Right. Because Absolutely. if I can see families before the baby gets here, I can help them so much better than if they're coming into my office at four weeks in tears where their baby's still yeah. below birth weight and everything's just like a mess. That would be Thank my you. ideal setup. And then of course, mental health provider too. Yeah. Because our rates of 40, I think it's 44% of um, our moms have postpartum mood disorders is atrocious. It's crazy. I know I'm I'm doing my... um. PMHC certificate through postpartum. Oh, I'm going to be doing that soon. Yeah. Right, I need one in January. I'm going to do the Zoom class in January. I'm so excited. I'm going to see if I can finish my other trainings first, but yeah, That's super awesome. excited. Our local health department are, got a huge grant to send providers in our community to do that training. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. They're, but things um, are changing. Things are changing. changing. They, are changing. <laughs> they are changing. And yeah, I agree with you. And I think what's so hard too, like another just piece for people to wrap their head around is you know, it's such a weird time because when you're pregnant, you have more medical care than ever. You're being watched like a hawk. But if you think about it, like your body is still growing this baby, right? Mm-hmm. The OB is not like doing anything at week 20 to be like, oh, we got to hook up the spinal cord, right? Like you're doing it on your own. And, and like, you know, in chiropractic, my pregnant patients are always like, this is amazing. Thank you. This is helping my pregnancy so much. And I'm like, oh no, like, thank you. I know you love this now, but like, you really need me after. Mm -hmm. And so I just think that like, and then we'll joke about it, right? While I'm treating them for like a clogged milk duct or low supply or pelvic floor stuff. I'm like, remember that back in the day when like your body was just growing the baby and you were like, this is so helpful. And they're like, oh yeah, that was like child's play, you know, and not that we need to catastrophize the postpartum or, you know, everybody process their own baggage by dumping it on other women. No, but it's such a crazy time, right? Like you're, if it's your first kid, you're, you're going from being like, you know, an independent person or a partner to to then a mom, right? There's just like huge, and I want to be inclusive of everybody. So when I use the term woman and mom, I mean, you know what I'm referring to, but it's like, it's a huge change of life role. Your body has just done the most physically amazing thing that it's ever going to do, right? I just think growing a human and getting them out of your body, no matter how you deliver is phenomenal, And then your body is trying to repair physically from the delivery while upregulating milk production, right? So we have this glandular tissue on our chest that's just finished its final phase of maturation that's ramping up milk. And then we're going to wake you up every couple hours, you know, and throw in the sleeplessness in this human, let alone like the hormonal cascade. So I, I just think really like, honoring how difficult it is to have all of that going on. And then in our country where, you know, a great maternity leave is three months off. I mean, I tend to find if people were asking me, what's the ideal time that like, if you have to go back to work, right. I think it's lovely for women who can take as much time as they want, but I'm always like four months, six months, you know, like if, like, can you take a little bit longer? We, we, you know, so often 
at that 12 week mark or 10 or 11, people are just getting a hang of it. You know, if you've had feeding issues, low birth weight, mastitis, da, 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 you know, a lot of times people are just feeling like they've got their sea legs under them and can even start enjoying their baby. And I'm like, now you need a maternity leave. Like you, you need to like sleep in and snuggle and, you know, go for some walks. Like you've oftentimes a lot of parents have just had more doctor's appointments than they've ever had. They've had more medical issues than they've ever dealt with, you know, and just honoring that that is really normal for a lot of people and just really encouraging them to slow down and really honor that. And I'm so used to working with really successful, driven, high-powered women. And it's like, your baby doesn't care how big your company is that you run. Your baby doesn't care, you know, what's looming over you for back to work. It's like, they just need you there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so just kind of really trying to take as much off your plate as you can. And I have so many women say, you know, Michelle, I feel like I should be able to do this. I feel like everyone else can. And I'm like, no, they're in here crying too. Like, yeah, get off Instagram. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I'm like, it might all be pretty on Instagram, but like it's behind the scenes. No, like they also want to leave their spouse and hate everyone and hate their job and, you know, don't want to go back to work. It's like, it's, it's just real and it's normal. And I think if we can just normalize that, that, you know, that would help people a lot. But you know, like the, we're talking about feeding today, but the other huge thing I see in that same line is like pelvic floor dysfunction and postpartum prolapse and stress incontinence mm-hmm. and pelvic pain. It, that used to be a huge part of my practice. And now we have the women, world's most amazing women's health PT in my town. So I, I'm like, you do that. I'm going to do the feeding. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we normalize it. We say, oh, just, you know, do more Kegels. And I, we just give bad advice and mm-hmm. Of course you pee them. your pants. You just had a baby. Just yeah, had common a baby, yeah. is not normal. Common yeah. is not normal. <laughs> okay. All so all the these time. women are walking around and they're thinking, yeah. okay, it's okay that I pee every time I sneeze or cough because I just had a baby. No, it's not normal. It's not normal it's for not. that to happen. Yep. I always say that it's common, but it's not normal. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's just a tough time. And we just, we normalize so many things, even just fatigue. You know, if I had a dollar for every woman who's like, I'm exhausted. And, you know, they just said nap when the baby naps. And I'm like, let's run some labs. And Hey, look, you're ragingly anemic and you know, your thyroid's in the toilet, Mm -hmm. you know, let's make sure there's not a medical issue before we just placate you for being postpartum. You know, you're going to be tired. Your hair's going to fall out. Yeah. Yeah. It's exhausting. I think the one thing that I want parents to take away from our conversation is if you are struggling in this system. It is not your fault. It's not anything that you're doing wrong. You are trying to recover postpartum and raise your baby in a broken system. And your providers who are trying to help you are working in that broken system. Yeah. And it's not their fault either. They're Mm -hmm. doing the best they can with their hands tied, Mm -hmm. you know, and their hands tied behind their back and the burden of charting and you know, did did I check all the boxes to ask you about smoking cessation? They'd way rather talk to you about the questions that you're in there for, but they're getting their chart notes audited and the insurance companies are wanting to see that they, you know, these are all based on like really lovely, well-researched public health measures. It's not like these, you know, the, the system didn't get to where it is like based out of, you know, trying to make their life hell, but it's just so not set up for moms and babies. Mm -hmm. And so it's not their fault and to have compassion for them, you know, and really understanding that, you know, they're really 
of all of, I feel like the people who work with moms and babies, the physicians are the most caught between the rock and the hard place. I feel the worst for them. Yeah. You know, 100% agree. So where can families find you if they want to connect with you and learn more about you? Uh, my website is the best place, which is drgerby.com. So it's just D-R-G-E-R-B-I.com. And then on Instagram, I'm at postpartum mothering mentor. And yeah, right now I do one-on-one coaching, but I, my plan is to actually launch group postpartum coaching. So kind of walking women through feeding issues as well as physical, mental, and emotional recovery postpartum and really teaching them how to advocate for themselves. So, and then I'm also in the process of recording a breastfeeding class called breastfeeding 911, not the kittens and roses classes, right? Of like, oh, and then the baby just latches. It's like for two in the morning. Skin sounds everything. (laughs) Like two in the morning when your breasts are dripping and your kids screaming and you're Mm -hmm. like, I don't, I don't think I can do this anymore. Yeah. You know, it's sort of it's it's that. So that Mm -hmm. will hopefully be released in the next couple months. So amazing. I'll put those links in the show notes so people can find you. you. And thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for all the good work that you're doing and putting all this info out there. Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaftIBCLC.com, where you can check out more options for support through pregnancy and beyond, including the Baby Pro Bistro, our parenting community. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaftIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes to help our episodes reach more parents like you. Thanks for listening. Bye.